Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, let's see how, is Finney going to be really hung over? There he is. Oh, he's sitting in the dark. You can't oh, see him in the dark. It's a fucking middle of the night. It's not the middle of the night. It's, it's, it's not, nine, it's nine a.m. Morning, you fucking hazy. <laughs> Well, you lot fucking whinged about getting up last week. So fuck yes, you. Yes, 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 yes. Because we were getting up at 8 a.m., not 9 a.m. Big difference. I mean, fucking hell. Uh, the, fu- the, the start of playing Hobart was 10.30. What time were you normally getting up? I gave you options as well. Enough. You asked for this. We gave you plenty of options. Yeah. How hungover are you, Finney? Pretty fucking hungover, to be fair. <laughs> Sussex are lucky to have you. Oh, you know that. Yeah. He's done a good job, though, hasn't he? He's done a good job. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's much loved. Well, you know, you've got you've got oh. through a pretty rancid tour, and you've maintained a kind of sense of joie de vivre, which I didn't think was possible in such a miserable night as you. Yeah, you're so fucking miserable when you speak to us, <laughs> and you get on TMS, and you're all jolly. I'm starting. To oh, think I know. Don't pay me, because I've. Because I've still not received a penny for doing this fucking podcast for a year. <laughs> yeah, but you get to hang out with me, nor cross and producer Sal every week. Can I, honestly, I do shitloads of stuff for free now because I'm just basically loaded. That's why you should be getting up at fucking 8 a.m. to do this and not me. Well, actually, I was up at 8 a.m. to do this and you didn't answer your WhatsApp. <laughs> that's, that's true. You know, I've got better things. I've got better things to do than answer WhatsApps from you. To be fair, I did see Finney hadn't replied when I set my alarm went off this morning, and I was delighted when I set another alarm and went back to sleep for an hour. I, I wasn't good. Luck. Uh, right, should we get straight into it, lads? Because you know Finney's got his last twenty four hours in Australia, and I'm sure he wants to go and it's see only today. Twenty four hours from Tulsa Hill. Just like what is it, Molly May? What's her name, Molly May? Who's the lady that said yeah. we've, all, we've all got the same twenty four hours in a day? T- yeah. And also, if you are actually flying from Australia back to England, you've got more than 24 hours in a day because you'll end up going through multiple time zones and you'll end up with something like a 36-hour day. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given. Uh, Norcross, even by your standards, that was amazing. As I did the intro, the unmistakable sound of you sparking a fag in the background as I was doing the <laughs> intro. You couldn't wait five seconds. <laughs> 
for me to oh, introduce sorry. the podcast. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. Oh. It wasn't um, deliberate, honestly. It was just, you know, I, I'm just so tired, Toby. Let, so let, let me set the scene, okay? So Norcross is in his usual place, in his bedroom, crying, smoking a cigarette, which is not just when, not just during the podcast, just in life. You'll normally find Norcross doing that. Stephen Finn has got into bed. It's early. It's not that early in the morning. It's like nine-ish in the morning for Finney. He's woken he up. up a minute ago. He was awake. He and was now look at him. Up. I can yeah. only yeah. see his head out of the duvet. There he is. He looks very comfortable, to be fair. <laughs> As we've got a slightly yeah, hungover Stephen yeah. Finn uh, lying in bed, uh, and we're off, and we're away. And this is how the magic happens. So, yep, a um, fitting end, I suppose, to a very bitterly disappointing Ashes series as England once again crumbled and collapsed in the face of an Australian side that is just so much better than them in every single department. Um, and we'll pick through the bones of, of what that defeat means, but we've kind of said... We've, we, we've basically been saying for months on this podcast all the things that people are now saying or, you know, about the county championship and how it repairs people for test cricket and yada, yada, yada. Sarah Dutt's given, we've been banging that drum way before England got battered in this test series, but we will reflect on that final test. And also an amazing win for South Africa in their test series against India and the end of Virat Kohli as Indian test captain as well. Um, and we'll look forward to the women's ashes or the washes that yeah. we have got coming up uh, later in January as well. First of all, Finney, how's the head, mate? So you're out eating oysters and drinking wine with, with David Gower, were you? Yeah, I didn't have any of the oysters because I couldn't think of anything worse, sticking one of those in my gob. So, yeah, I was out having some wine with Gower and Aggers and, and people. Yeah, it was quite a pleasant end to the trip for us yeah and now norcross i bet you love an oyster mm. you look like a man who can eat well i think, 50 I think oysters. you can tell a lot you can tell a lot from a man by whether or not he's willing to eat oysters mm. and uh i've i'm i'm the kind of man who loves eating oysters and uh yeah and long may it continue yeah well, it does whereas you know me. i know they're, they're absolutely absolutely delicious especially with a little shallot vinaigrette sauce or, or actually as i was discussing on bt sport which i was on for the last few tests covering the, the ashes for the uh, TV rights holders in the UK. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, David was saying to me how he tends to prefer to have it with Tabasco, uh, which is a, another perfectly valid choice, but you normally wash it down with champagne, not mm. wine. So I don't know what's up with Finney. I suppose it's because it's ra- you're on radio, aren't you? So. But, you know, uh, David and, and the TV boys tend to have it with champagne. Uh, you, you can pretend to be this highbrow fucking <laughs> eloquent man. And we know you're just not, really. <laughs> we, <laughs> that's, that, you know, really, you're, Oysters. You're, usually really, you're usually really good at insults, but I strongly suspect <laughs> that nine o'clock in the morning is not your time. <laughs> no. <laughs> But oysters, oysters, those things, like people just fucking pretend that they like them because they think it looks good that they're having them. No, that's truffles. Sit there and eat a fucking bit of jelly out of a fucking shell. Oh, it's disgusting. It's like eating a bogey, a big like grolly. Oh, it doesn't taste like a bogey or indeed like like jelly unless you ever get oyster flavored jelly. It's got the delicious taste of the sea. I mean, no, it sacrifices its it, it sacrifices its life for you, and that's how you describe it. I mean, it's absolutely bang out of order. If you don't mind me saying so, shows a lack of respect for whatever they're called. 
I'm I'm sort of on both sides here because I recently had oysters for the first time and I thought they were fine, but they do pretty much just taste of whatever you put on them. Like you're saying, vinaigrette or Tabasco sauce or a bit of lemon juice. The oyster doesn't taste of anything. It's just a slightly slimy vessel for a nice flavor. Um, and I do think it's one of those things because it's expensive. People like eating it. And truffle is the same. Um, oh. Truffle... Truffle's disgusting. I bet Norcross loves a truffle. Love it. Well, truffle, truffle in brie is fantastic. A lovely ripe brie, which has got a, a sort of truffle midriff, if you will, is one of the more delicious cheeses you can have, especially around Christmas time. Um, and interest, very uninterestingly, actually, I was about to say interesting, but very <laughs> uninterestingly, uh, I, I saw a feature on the news the other day that uh, uh, a South African woman with many names has trained some. Uh, hunting dogs to find truffles in uh, Epsom. <laughs> I bet those won't be that. They'll be the cheap truffles. Just again to paint a picture for our for our listener, those sound effects. Whilst uh, Dan Norcross was describing how he likes brie with <laughs> truffle infused, uh, was him pouring himself a large glass of wine. So if you hear any clinking whilst he was chatting there, that's what was happening. Right, let's get straight into it. There's a few things I need to speak to Stephen Finn about. Uh, first of all, the photo that we posted on social media this week of. Stephen Finn with his idol, Mr. Glenn McGrath. Finney, um, a little bit offended that me and Norcross have been doing this podcast with you for some time now. And yet every time you look at us, you look at us with disgust. Exactly that face you're holding right now, very similar to that. And yet around Glenn McGrath, you're like a mm. kid in a sweet shop. I've never seen you look so doughy-eyed. How was it hanging out with you with your hero all that time, Finney? I'm still intimidated and, and scared to um, converse with him because... Even when I did that, the podcast on the BBC, chatting to him about bowling and when I watched him when I was a kid and, and what it was like, it's, you still feel very inadequate even talking in the same sentence as someone like Glenn McGrath. So, no, I've been, a, I've been like a shy school child over here for the last eight weeks, being, being in the same place as Glenn McGrath and, yeah, still still get pretty nervous around him, to be honest, even at 32 years old. I mean, I was looking at his stats when I posted the photo because, I mean, you just forget. 563 wickets at 21. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, absolutely don't, I don't forget. I don't forget. I remember every single one of them. There were a dagger in my heart. The idea <laughs> that this quizzling traitor, Stephen Finn, is wandering around looking doe-eyed at this person who destroyed the soul of a nation for 15 years is quite frankly sickening. I've been working with Glenn on the... Um, well, on BT Sport, who are the official uh, rights holders for the Ashes on, on TV. And um, <laughs> <laughs> very much, very much enjoyed his presence, actually. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't myself feel remotely intimidated by him because he's Australian. And uh, obviously there isn't, they, with the possible exception of Goff Whitlam and Dame Edna Everidge, there are no Australians. Oh, and B. Smith from the original Prison Cell Block H. There are no Australians, maybe Paul Hogan when I was younger, I mean, but there are literally no Australians other than them that you should feel intimidated around because they suffer from the fundamental problem of being Australian. Well, my dad once got and mistaken. And Pat Cummins, actually. I've got to yeah, I don't, we, we need to come yeah, on to Pat yeah. Cummins at some point. My dad got yeah. mistaken once for Paul Hogan at an airport. Somebody ran up to him very excited. Did he? Asked, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looks nothing like him. <laughs> but he doesn't really, no. No, he, kind of, he, he looks like an Australian version of my dad. He looks like an Australian guy who would be a crocodile hunter version of my dad. But that's about as far as it goes. Very, very tenuous. Well, Finn, it was adorable seeing you like that, mate. And it was nice to see that you do have a warm, fuzzy side because we only ever get to see your cold, bitter, 
cantankerous, miserable side. So it was nice to see that side of you. Uh, we do also have some questions for um, the love God, but we'll come to those a bit later on. Because I do want to move on. Actually, Norcross, you've been very useful there, which is most unlike you. Because I do want to start off talking about this Australian cricket side. And it makes me sick to my stomach to say this, but um, we were all, I, I played golf over the weekend. We were all chatting about, you know, how badly the cricket was going, and blah, 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 blah. And me and my mate were discussing the fact that I don't hate this Aussie side. And that's really annoyed me because I was brought up. To hate, that's what you do. You just hate the Aussies. It's, it's banter. It's sometimes genuine hatred. That is what you do. And I sort of go through the lineup and even the ones that I'm not sure about, they're really good. So I respect them as cricketers. And Pat Cummins is just an absolutely delightful human being. He's been the top wicket taker in every single Ashes series he's played in so far. He also is so handsome, as I've discussed on this podcast, probably more than I should have. And there's a beautiful moment, a really touching moment. Um, I don't know if you've seen the video going around, but as the Australia side went to go and celebrate winning the Ashes, there was lots of bottles of champagne out. So Kawaja, because of his religious beliefs, took himself away from the celebrations and thought he'd stand backwards. Pat Cummins spotted it immediately, turned around to everyone and said, I'll put the bottles down. Let's get Uzi in for the photo. Kawaja came in, then they celebrated with Kawaja. Um, It says a lot, I thought that. His first ever series as captain. He's led his side to a 4-0 Ashes win. And it may seem a small thing, that Kawaja thing, but it was the fact that he was so quick to notice it he just seems like a thoroughly good bastard and he's a really good bowler as well. Norcross, he's like the polar opposite of you, isn't he? He's the perfect human. He, he is. Yeah, he is. He's, he's absolutely the polar opposite of me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of anything in which we are in any way similar. I think we both actually do like to use a strong two clubs in bridge and play the Blackwood Convention. So maybe that's the one thing that we do have in common. But I just want to say... Oh, the, on that very subject, that yes, like it was, it's brilliant that, of course, that he was sensitive enough to spot that Kawaja is a practicing Muslim and therefore they should stop spraying booze around. But I particularly like Yaz Rana's tweet from Wisdom Cricket Monthly, who said, um, It's amazing how much credit we give cricketers for not spraying practicing Muslims with booze. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I do think that we've got to be. We've got to be slightly careful of this because I think we've set a very low bar for ourselves in sport <laughs> as to right. what constitutes good behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe rather than noticing it every time, it just shouldn't, it should just be part of normal life. Yeah, you might rather be right. Go, oh, isn't that marvellous? He's not, he's not pinned. It was when Kawaja to the floor <laughs> and poured half a bottle of champagne down his job. Yeah, what a lovely man, you know. So let's 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 get a bit of perspective. Okay, I get you, but you know it's 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 a little indication of what maybe Pat Cummins is like in the dressing room as a bowler, Finney and Bowlers Union. I mean, I mentioned Glenn McGrath's stats earlier. Okay, Pat Cummins has got a long way to go, but bear in mind, Cummins burst onto the scene, then had serious injury troubles, and it looked like he was never going to really be able to live up to his um, expectations. He's now played thirty-eight Test matches, one hundred and eighty-five wickets at twenty-one point one nine. And we talk a lot about the fact that it's becoming a batsman's game. And nowadays, a good, a good test bowler's average is, is much nearer 30. You know, we wax lyrical about Nathan Lyon of a bowling average of 32. Pat Cummins, 21.19, 185 wickets. Um, he's about as good as anything I've, I've seen in recent years. How good is he, Finney, as, a, as another bowler? Yeah, ridiculous, really. I mean, those, the numbers are insane. I played 36 test matches and took 125 wickets. 
and I had a decent strike rate, bad economy rate, but it was fun to watch me bowl because I took wickets and got panned. So it yeah. was, um, it was, yeah. At least the game moved forward when I was bowling. Yeah, <laughs> well, the game moved forward when I bowled in international cricket, which <laughs> was, um, certainly did when John Simpson good. was batting. Game moved forward very quickly. <laughs> Fucking hard. Like, I cannot wait to watch you next year <laughs> <at some stage. laughs> on some shitty village green. Watching you fucking stick legs and those fucking matchstick arms hanging out the end of a fucking baggy T-shirt, throwing down some of the biggest powder puffs I've ever fucking seen in my life and watch some fat bloke who's been on a building site all week pan you all over the joint and then tell you your shits and I'll be fucking telling you your shit from the sideline as well. I promise you. I'll tell you what, Norcross, he's perked up after you said he wasn't good at insults early in the morning. He's, he's, he's vastly improved, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, 15 yeah. minutes in our company and he's back to normal. Oh, it's, nice to, it's nice to see the colour return to his cheeks so quickly, actually. Uh, so, sorry, Freddie. Yeah. I was chatting to you about Pat Cummins. Genuinely, he's relentless. I feel like he doesn't bowl a bad delivery. And he, he's, there's almost a bit of young McGrath when he had a bit more pace about him. He's just relentless, but with a heavy ball as well. He's, I genuinely just kept watching his overs going. I don't know where the next run's going to come from off him. Um, is he as good as anyone in the world right now? Is he, is he the best in the world right now? Yeah, well, it's his angle of release that makes him so good, in my opinion, because a batter will feel like, because of, he's slightly beyond the perpendicular and the ball's angled in towards a right-handed batter the entire time. They have to play. And if it nips back or if it continues on that trajectory, then it bowls them or gets them LBW. Or then if it moves away just slightly it beats their outside edge or hits their outside edge. And, and he's just so consistent with what he does. I mean, you're right. He never, very rarely bowls a bad ball. The only bad ball I can remember in bowling is the ball to Ben Stokes to yeah. lose the ashes at Headingley. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's the, literally the only bad ball. This this series, he's been relentless. Again, he shuffled his bowl as well as a, as a captain. He was part of the decision-making that led to their selections that brought Kawaja in that brought Boland in, that brought Jai Richardson in for that second test, who took five for and hasn't played again in the series. So they, there's a lot to like about Pat Cummins. And it's very um it's very hard to dislike him. I mean I I've like shared a beer with him at the end of Ashes series. I think the 2015 one he was there, but didn't play a game. Um and you remember chat I remember chatting to him a number of times and just thinking this boat's just really, really nice. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. since then he's gone on to take his wickets at the same at the same rate as Glenn McGrath, who is arguably the best fast bowler that's ever lived. Him and Dale Stain probably are the two that have um, the, the best with statistically that have ever lived. So yeah, I think I think there's a lot to like about Pat Cummins, even though he's Australian. Well, aside from you completely glossing over the incredible career of George Lohman and SF Barnes, I, I will allow you that. Uh, but I, I, yeah, Cummins is the best bowler I've seen in my life. I think he's better actually than McGrath and Stain for for reason. He's really He's that much more exciting to watch, actually. He's he's, he's brilliant in every way. More exciting than Stain. That's oh, a big shout. I was going to say yeah, Dale Stain. So, yeah, yeah really? he's, quite, he's quite, predict, quite predictable Stain, I thought. I mean, he does the rushing in thing and he's got a lovely, lovely smiley face, face until he then starts scowling and then he flings it at you quite full. But I find the kind of horrifying examination of Cummins. I like torture, I think. I think that's what it is. Mm. Whereas with Stain, I didn't feel like it was torture. I felt like, you know... They bowl a couple that were quite full. You could, you, you all you got to do is put the bat in it, flip, ping away for four, and then he'd rearrange your stumps. It would be superb, in one sense. Uh, but to me, I like the continued torture of him 
targeting Joe Root's cock for five matches <laughs> and and hitting it more often than not, which is an extraordinary thing to do when he's such a nice man as well. And to be really clear on this, um, I think it's time that we stopped being disappointed that Australians are nice men. Because it is, it's reasonable for them to be nice men. And actually in the commentary box, uh, I would say that 90% of Aussies I've worked with have been really, really lovely people. And um, less than half of the English ex-players I work with are lovely. Uh, the Australians <laughs> are much, much nicer. I mean, look, I have to work with fucking Finney for kickoff, mm. who's irascible, grumpy, mm. entitled, superior, yeah. you know. And then you sit down next to Glenn McGrath, doesn't know me from Adam, and he's the most lovely, welcoming mm. man you could wish to meet, mm. actually. They That's all are. Like, look, only got to listen to Ian Chappell to realise, you know, just how generous and lovely they can be. And uh, <laughs> you know, just, you know, to a man, to a, to a man, they're great. <laughs> it's nice how they see other perspectives, actually, as well, and um, uh, and embrace modern mm. modern cricket. And yeah, it's pleasant. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's, it's true, pleasant, actually. Yeah. When you put it like yeah. that, because Finney calls you a. Prick. Hang on a minute. Have we have we all got Stockholm syndrome? <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> We've fallen in love Let's with our Let's all go to Australia. Let's all become yeah. Australian. It'll make life so much easier. It is nice. This it podcast nice. could be full of joy if we were Australian. You, you are right. Finney calls you a prick every week on this podcast, and Glenn McGrath's not mm. called you a prick once. So no, never. Very telling. No. Very, very telling indeed. <laughs> um, now, the future of English cricket, there's, everybody's got an opinion on what needs to change, and a lot does need to change. And there's obviously a formula out there, because I've mentioned this before, but... All the other countries are getting it right. You know, there's guys that play, you know, David Gower went down the route of the IPL, but Rohit Sharma and Rahul play pretty damn well in that. And they're also pretty damn good at test cricket as well. You know, people are going down the route. The pitches is an interesting one, but um, the English pitches have always been a bit green and it's always been a bit overcast. So there's, there's lots of problems and there's, I think it's hard to pin down one. But I don't know if we're going to see change anytime soon. The county fixture list is going to be announced in the next couple of weeks, which means nothing radical is going to happen for at least 12 months. I just, I'd love to be a fly on the wall right now at the ECB. Dan Norcross, if you've got any predictions, can you see the ECB actually doing anything this summer coming up to address the problem with Red Bull cricket in England? Because I don't think they will. I think they're going to pray that we paper over the cracks and somehow winning the Caribbeans and then come back to England and, and hopefully win in favourable conditions and everybody lets them off the hook until the ashes in a few years' time. Well, I, I'm slightly more worried that they might actually try to do something about it because if they do, they're almost certainly going to do the wrong thing. So <laughs> in, in some ways, I don't know that it's actually the system that we have in county cricket. Yes, you can talk about tinkering a bit. You know, Maybe it should be two divisions of nine or things like that. But it was county cricket that got England to number one in the world in 2010-11 and one at the Ashes, or or it wasn't. Maybe what it was was a combination of factors, which is talented players, quite a reasonable stream of overseas players playing both in county cricket and for England. Jonathan Trott, mm. Kevin Peterson, you know. Um, it, it wasn't unusual for there to be South African people playing for England, which had which widened our talent pool uh, and the coaching setup, the coaches that England had. And what we're doing is trying to find a scapegoat in the wider system of English cricket, 
But what about looking at how this team was prepared by the coaches that they had? You know, people want to try and put blame on the 100, but the 100 didn't make this England squad turn up there in, in the shape they were in with the preparation that they got and with ever more abstruse and Byzantine techniques. I mean, I've watched Ollie Pope for five years in county cricket and he was a settled, balanced batter, the best in county cricket by a mile. He was at a first-class average of 60. He stood on middle and leg middle, moved across to nearer off stump occasionally if the ball was moving around a bit early season against certain types of bowling. When he got out to Cummins the last time, in the last test, it was comical. He was so far over, he got out in the first innings, edging a ball on sixth stump for no apparent reason. Didn't need to play it in. And in the second innings, Cummins, who's so, so clever, just went and hit middle and leg instead because he'd shown in those two stumps. Mm. And, and you, you're finding these techniques that have come in. So where's the what's happening in the coaching stuff mm. that's not saying, guys, what are you doing? Or are they actively encouraging that to happen? Let's look at the individuals as well as the system. It's, we've seen articles come out, both in The Guardian and The Telegraph, from Tim Wigmore and Ali Martin talking about players refusing to take the caliper test, you know, the, the, the fat test, because it's, it's fat shaming and saying that they don't, it, it, it mustn't be done. There's been insinuations of a drinking culture. There's a suggestion that the players aren't fit enough. Now, all those things will probably come out when there's a defeat because there'll be leaks from different people who've got different agendas. I totally get that. But that's, that didn't happen when Andy Flower and Duncan Fletcher were running aside the way they were running it. So, you know, I think we could possibly look closer to home before we start saying, let's rip up the county championship. Jonathan Agnew, Stephen Finns and my colleague on TMS has said, you've got to get rid of the county championship. There's a suggestion and the thought that the 100 was kind of stalking horse for getting rid of the championship in a way, creating these 800 franchises and then, actually turning them into red ball teams as well. But that I, I don't understand the logic behind it. It doesn't... It is, it's, it's sort of dealing with a symptom, not a cause, it seems to me. And I, I think let's first and foremost take a look at the preparation, the players and the coaching and the attitude within the squad uh, and understand that there are mitigating factors as well, which is that they've been playing way too much cricket, wandering around the world for 18 months in COVID, playing way more than any other country has had to do, been rested when they didn't want to be on occasion, uh, abysmal selections at times, incredibly abysmal selections. The teams at Brisbane and Adelaide were the wrong way around. And then to hear the coaching staff say, well, we'd do the same again. Well, what? Why, what? why would you do the same thing again? Are you absolutely off your mash? So there's a lot of defensiveness within the team and the culture. And uh, all of that has massively changed. And how that changes, I don't know. But it has to start with a lot of people not being, not doing the jobs they're doing and different people doing them. Yeah, I mean, look, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think when Finney was at, um, was at Sam Robson's birthday, bless him, I think Norcross and I chatted about the future of Chris Silverwood, and I said at the time, the, 
biggest problem I've, I've got two problems with Chris Silverwood nothing against him as a bloke I've never met him he comes across perfectly amiable in interviews I don't know anything about the guy it's nothing personal um, I can only go based on what I've seen from the England cricket team and not only is he not improving players but I'd say everyone that comes into the side at the minute seems to start okay and get worse Rory Burns' technique has got funkier and weirder uh, Ollie Pope's got worse Sibley came into the side looked quite solid got became shotless Hamid has become shotless. Uh, Crawley went for a horrible run last year. Bairstow fell apart last year. The only two that have been consistently good are Anderson and Root. And let's be honest, I don't think they get coached much by Chris Silverwood. I think they're pretty self-sufficient and coach themselves. And the other thing is that after the second test, he said that they you know, had big meetings and some home truths and whatever, and they put in their worst performance of the series. So he obviously isn't getting through to the players either. So something does need to change and maybe some of the players need to look at them in, in the mirror at themselves as well. But certainly I think Chris Silverwood is someone that somebody has to be the full guy for a 4-0 Ashes defeat um, and some of the capitulations we've seen. Let's not kid ourselves as well. England were playing badly before this Ashes series. England have been bad at Test cricket for some time under Chris Silverwood. Finney, you've obviously been in changing rooms where, where the coaches have changed. You don't have to name names, but have there been coaches where genuinely there's a bit of a toxic atmosphere and or coaches where you're like you know he's a nice bloke but he's not getting the best out of us as players and is there also times where you're like the dressing room just needs a freshen up just needs to hear a different voice for a bit yeah yeah there's certainly the the coaches need to match the players that you have in your dressing room so the the coaches need to be able to get the best out of that current crop of players and coaches will have their own different styles that will that will mean that that they can get the best in in whichever way out of players. But coaches do have their own philosophies. And if those philosophies don't match up with the players that are in the dressing room, then it's very hard to make it work, I would say. So, um, yeah, Andy Flower was a a very good coach because he, he pushed players to make themselves better and coached players to make them better um, and was a man manager who um, who got the best out of the, the crop of players that he did. That obviously ended up falling away in the 2013-14 Ashes. But yeah, in the build-up to that, over the course of 2009-13, his style of coaching suited the players. And then similarly, when Trevor Bayliss was England coach from 2015-19, to 19, his relaxed style allowed people like Ben Stokes, Owen Morgan, Josh Butler to thrive in both the white ball and the test match team. So... I think certainly the, the coach has to match up with the philosophy of the players. Otherwise, he's not going to get the best out of them. Whether that's happened in Chris Silverwood's case, I don't know from what I've heard in terms of when he was at Essex. I think his philosophy is very much to have a relaxed atmosphere that allows players to get the best out of themselves. I think that the one question that needs to be asked in this, uh, this scenario is, is it actually feasible that someone can be a head selector and a coach at the same time? I don't think it is. And that's not Chris. Well, the one question that, that I don't think we've got an answer to is who actually wanted that role? Is who's, Who has designed that role to make someone fully accountable for that, but then also or the selection of people, but then also try and get the best out of them from a coaching perspective, because the, the dynamic to me just doesn't work. So the one thing that need, will need to happen for, for, I think, for the England team to get better is to split the role. So keep Chris Silverwood as head coach, but then have a selector above him 
who can be a sounding board to to help those decisions and and have more logic. I think Australia have done it perfectly. They've got a recently retired, sensible, intelligent ex-player as their head selector who has an older counterpart with him to help bounce ideas off and to give him experience or to give him a an opinion from from a position of experience the captain and the coach or the selection panel and, and I think that that works far far better than asking one person I think unrealistically to do the whole thing can I, can I ask you about that because it's really interesting because I heard a lot of ex-players talk about this because with my football fan head on to me when they announced that change that Chris Silver would be selecting the side, have complete control over that. Um, I kind of thought, well, makes sense. In football, the manager picks a side. He wouldn't get told by the board or somebody above him, right, you're going you're to play this 11. Why, why does it not work in cricket? Is it? I heard Mark Butcher talk about the fact that if you're not feeling confident, you're struggling with your game, you're, you know, you're, you're struggling with your technique, whatever, maybe you wouldn't be confident going to Chris Silverwood and telling him that because you know that he's got to put you got to put, pick a test side in the next few weeks. Is, 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 is that the reason it doesn't really work in cricket? Or is it just a stress that Chris Silverwood doesn't need? Yeah, I mean, I'm taking the credit for this because I mentioned this about a month ago when, when <laughs> England lost the first two test matches. So I'm fucking, I'm taking, everyone's latching onto my point. I'm fucking like, <laughs> this is what I happens to... when they go in the media. Once they get in the media, they think, you know, oh, I said something once on radio and everybody would have heard that, not realising that it was about. 15 people at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, a month ago, might I add. Um, and, <laughs> oh, Captain um, Foresight. No, no, no. No but, I, no, but I fear, well, you're Captain Foreskin. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> oh, he's awake. He's awake. Um, no, I, but it's, it's definitely a pertinent point because I think if you, and I've been in a position when I've been a player to, you need to go to a coach or someone and confide in them. And, and the thing that's different with football is you you go to an away game, you, you're with your coach and your team for one night. You might stay the night before the match. And then after the match, you fuck off back to your house mm. and, and you can escape the bubble and the environment of that. Whereas on a cricket tour, you're living in each other's pockets for two and a half months and even more so with COVID, there's there's no breathing space. You, you don't get to have that escape from the environment. So this cricket team or the, the coaching staff and everyone there become your family and the people that you confide in whilst you're away on tour. So asking someone to select the team and make decisions on people's careers, which is ultimately what the selector does, the head selector, then asking them to be the coach as well, who is the person that's meant to be their confidant and the person that they confide in about the insecurities about their game if you're if you're not able or to to discern between the two roles um you would never go to a head selector i would never in my time as an england player go to jeff miller and say jeff i'm really struggling with my game here i i need uh, like i need some help in order to get me better you would i would never ever say that to jeff miller i just got his calls when he told me i was in the team or out the team that's the relationship you have with the head selector. He's, he is the brutal one. Whereas the coach is almost like a father figure, especially to younger players who they can go to and say, look, look, coach, I'm, I'm struggling with this at the moment. I'm getting too far across to the offside and I can't stop myself. Or with me, it was I'm getting too close to the stumps and me and the fucking stumps. 
I can't, I can't stop that. How do I make that better? But if you reveal those insecurities to a head selector, mm. there's no way he's ever going to pick you because it's his head on the chopping block because he picked someone who's not ready to play. So, yeah, I, I think that then that would lead to you. If you've got someone doing both those roles, that would lead to you not, not releasing information to the coach about the help that you need, which then puts you down a rabbit hole chasing your own tail, which is then when you see frazzled players. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I think the, the role is, it, it, for me, the one thing that comes out of this whole Ashes series, because I think, again, I'm waffling here, but the, the, the thing that has not been spoken about that much is the fact that the quarantine, the lack of preparation, they had less than 90 overs preparation for a test series in Australia, five pretty much back-to-back test matches that once you do get on a losing streak, things just snowball because everything is stacked against you. The county system doesn't support the players in order to make them better, to thrive in conditions like this, in my opinion. The fundamentals of test match bowling, pace, bounce, learning how to bowl long, hard spells um, in these conditions. And then batters building an innings over six or eight hours in order to win a test match. County cricket doesn't let you do that. It doesn't prepare you for it at all. You have 200 plays, 150 plays, 150 plays, 100. Like it, it, they're like sh- low-scoring shootouts. You don't learn to develop a game over a long period of time in county cricket. So that a number of those factors are the reason that are put into a melting pot that has eventuated in England losing this test series. Mm, I, I, I agree with everything you said. It'll be interesting to what they do with Chris Silverwood in the future. And uh, I thought Joe Root hit the nail, nail on the head the other day when he said, what you know, incentive is there for somebody in the county game to bowl 90 miles an hour, to bat at the top of the order, to bowl spin? There's no, you wouldn't do it because that's not what was successful. You want to bat at five and six and hide away from the new ball and you want to bowl 75 miles an hour and nibble it around. And that's how you'll be successful in county cricket. So I, I thought he hit the nail on the head with that. Very quickly, Dan, because I do need to move on. But yes, mm-hmm. you're pointing at me. Yeah, I, I wanted to add to what Finney was saying there. That, that you got to be really clear. It's nothing like football. The England coach is the coach of the England team but it's not Gareth Southgate Gareth Southgate has his players very very infrequently and then gets to go around and watch lots and lots of football so the England coach is a bit like a club coach but a club coach has the squad that he's got he has 25-30 people he doesn't have to go around scouting he has scouts to go and find players for him to buy in different transfer windows so they're completely different it's it's not remotely analogous. Cricket is unique and strange and unusual, which is why, as Finney says, it's even more nuts that everything was on Silverwood's plate, especially when he's clearly a very nice man. I mean, if yeah. you're going to give somebody a supremo role, they've got to be like General Tito or Joseph Stalin. You know, they've got to be <laughs> absolute wankers. Yeah. They, have, they can't be nice blokes and have yeah. a total control. That way, like, madness lies. You know it it I mean? is a completely unique sport. And also, I was, I was chatting to my mates about this at the weekend as well, that the captain is essentially the manager. Once you're out there, he picks the tactics, he sets the fields, yeah. he picks the bowlers. It's a bizarre sport like no other. I mean, the, the, I, I can't imagine anything more stressful than being a, a test captain, although Pat Cummins seems to be doing it rather well. Um, speaking of test captains, Virat Kohli has stepped down as India captain um, after a 2-1 defeat in South Africa in the test series. Before we go into India and uh, I have to admit there was a little bit of Schadenfreude kicked in when India lost that test series I'm not going to lie to you but a word on South Africa 
Quinton de Kock announcing his retirement just before the series to beat India, who have won away at Australia recently, were 2-1 up in a test series against England in England, which still needs to be decided. An unbelievable performance from South Africa. Um, it was a quite fitting way for Kohli to sign out because he did completely lose his head on the penultimate day. Don't know if you've seen it. There was an LBW decision that got overturned against Dean Elgar. India thought it was a mistake with the technology. I can't make my mind up. I, I, I can see why it might be missing the stumps, but uh, India completely... Oh, it was definitely missing. It was definitely, I'll tell you why it was missing the stumps. It was missing the stumps because he got a huge stride in. And actually, if you watch that ball, the trajectory of it, Ashwin really tossed it up. Mm. And virtually no balls were shown to be hitting the stumps on that pitch because it was really bouncy. Yeah. It's just that when you looked at it front on, you saw it hitting his, hitting his shin. But what you didn't see was you didn't see the side-on view. If you see the yeah. side-on view, he's a yard and a half in front of the crease. It wasn't that crazy at all. But just a quick word on South Africa there, because it's really, after just what we've spoken about, you talk about the incentives, and Finney's right to talk about, you know, who wants to put in the hard yards to become a, a gritty opening bat or bowl over after over after over. Well, amazingly enough, in South Africa's very much disregarded first-class system, they have managed to create Dean Elgar and Aidan Markham at the top of the order They've created Keegan Peterson out of nowhere. He's got the best technique I've seen of a so new young good. batter. Oh, I love Absolutely him. fantastic. Yeah. They've got bowlers like Rabada, Olifia, who was bowling in county cricket for Yorkshire, not particularly successfully, it must be said. Okay, but not absolutely brilliantly. Banging out long spells and giddy. So other countries seem to be able to motivate their players to do things. Maybe it's a problem we've got in, in Britain where, you know, players say well what's in it for me well how about what's in it for you is that you might get a half a million pound a year test match red ball contract yeah it seems there are incentives there yeah there are incentives to improve and get better yeah you don't have to just think only about you know how i'm going to score runs for for your county and incidentally on the subject of batting long innings the last match of the county championship season in late september which is apparently a terrible time to bat at the oval Score 1,394 runs scored for the loss of 10 wickets. Glamorgan got 670 and Surrey got 720 and Ollie Pope got 260. So, you know, it's not uniform. It is, it is a mixed picture. Obviously, there are those days when Tim Murter and, uh, you know, Darren Stevens absolutely go through a side on a green top. It's usually not in April, incidentally, where you get higher scores in April, statistically, than you do in May. But uh, there are those, and they're balanced by other games with other players as well. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, I don't think there is a simple answer to any of these things. There are loads of valid comments to be made about all of them. But take a look at those counterexamples. Take a look at how white ball cricket hasn't prevented Australia from being T20 world champions and putting out a great red ball team. It hasn't prevented, as I just pointed out, South Africa beating India at home. I mean, absolutely brilliant performance, that amazing. And as for Kohli in all of this, you know, here's a guy who's played all three formats, uh, has clearly been massively dedicated to Test cricket, takes it extremely seriously. Is the is he third or fourth most successful captain of all time in terms of wins? totally transformed an attitude. Well, I don't know whether he did, but India under him had a very different attitude towards how they were going to play their well, cricket I mean, from the one they had before him. 
his record is unbelievable. 40 wins in 68 tests as captain, including 16 away from home. And India were notorious bad travellers when he, when he took over. We'll remember his captaincy for all the camera being on him all the time and the gesticulating and the getting angry and getting the crowd pumped up. He's a bit of a pantomime villain, I think, especially for English cricket fans. I think, again, there's a bit of shadow Freud when Coley fails and we're never more excited when Jimmy Anderson gets him out cheaply and his record against him. But in amongst it all, you'd love him to be your captain, wouldn't you, Finney? He's he's turned that India side into a pretty ruthless, terrifying side to play against over the last few years. It's a shame, I guess, it ended like this. But he's one of the he's, he's one of the great captains of all time, really. Yeah, well, I think he did transform the... Indian team in terms of making them fitter, more athletic. Um, he very much drove that. So I, I think he needs to take some or all of the credit for that. I think India realised that they needed to have fast bowlers who who could go abroad and, and play on the wickets outside of India um, rather than just producing spinners. And I think that he was a big part of that as well, building that battery of fast bowlers that made them win in Australia and help them go a long way towards beating England before the series got cut short last summer. Yeah, so I think to carry the weight of a nation like someone would have to do as India test captain and to do it whilst being as successful as that. And actually, I know he's a bit of a pantomime villain, but I've spent a little bit of time with him over the course of my career. Um, I think I'm one of the only people to get him out in all three formats, actually. So oh. you can add that in. Hey. Um, just, hang on, you dropped something. <laughs> 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 um, no, he's uh, he, like he's he's actually a nice bloke, and, and you speak to him, and you can have a proper conversation with him. And, and yeah, I found him quite entertaining to speak to after a series or after a game when you when you did socialise with the other team. So yeah, I think he's obviously has probably had enough. It probably gets to a point when you're Indian Test captain where you're just like, I can't. Mm. I, I need to just give my myself a break from this because it would be so intense. Um, and, and yeah, it's a shame for him, I think, that they didn't go out on a win in South Africa. But but yeah, there's still a lot to be proud of there, definitely. It was seven, seven years, seven years, seven or even eight years by the end of it, really, doing probably the toughest job in world cricket, being captain of India. Yeah. And his his performance with the bat has, has just dropped off in the last couple of years. And I kind of sense that that's been quite quite the driving force in him finally sort of stepping down as captain. But I always think like, the thing that, that is emblematic of Coley is that moment at Lords when he got his team together and they had 50-odd, 57 overs or so to bowl England out. And he said to them all, I don't want to see any of you laughing or smiling or joking at any point in the next 50-something overs. We have to make this hell for England. Because he wanted to win the game and he realised that the only way to win the game was to create an intimidatory atmosphere and watch was quite a good pitch. And that was, that was Coley to a T. His, his determination, his desire to win was so different from most international captains, actually, but definitely all Indian captains before him. He went into the game to win it and uh, it meant that his teams played very, very exciting cricket. But incidentally, one of their very, very best bowlers, Jasprit Bumrah. How much first-class figure has he played? And how many unforgiving pitches and long spells has he had to bowl? Not very many before mm. coming into an England team and having his talents tailored to test cricket. And that's what coaches and captains 
need to do in the modern era because obviously young people are going to want to make lots of money out of playing T20 and bowling four overs a day but you've got to find a way of incentivizing them also to bowl 90 miles an hour and be one of the best quick bowlers in the world with a red ball as well as a white ball yeah he's an amazing captain for India and uh, always box office always entertaining and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens to his batting now that he has announced that he's ending his time as, as captain if that improves very, very quickly, before we look ahead to the Washes, the women's ashes that are starting uh, this week, we do have a couple of questions for the love god, a.k.a. Stephen Finn. Uh, very, very quickly. Uh, first question I've got for you here, uh, love god. Andy Nixon wants to know who the best person is to have a beer with at Middlesex. Who's, your be- who's the most fun on a night out at Middlesex? Most fun on a night out, probably Tim Merton, the elder statesman, when he's let out and when he lets himself um, go out and have a couple of drinks, he's He's a bit like a coiled spring, so he's, um, he's very good fun. That's the Irishman in him. And uh, Jack Rule is having trouble with his toaster. Uh, he says, every time I use my toaster, the bread either comes out burnt black or not toasted at all. What am I doing wrong? Should I get rid of the toaster or accept burnt toast, says Jack. He's got a big question. That's a big question. There's nothing worse than burnt toast. So I'd say... Can you switch it off and then on again? Or is there not a way to reset a toaster? I don't know. Probably need to head down to Argos or something, mate, if I'm being quite frank. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. This is this is the nutsest question ever, right? He says his toaster either gets it underdone or burned, right? So if it's underdone, then it must be on the setting that's underdone. So put it down and then when it's not done enough, put it down again. If what he means is that it then seems to burn it, what he's got to do is what he's got to understand is that toasting is a process of heat over time. <laughs> so rather than just relying on the toaster, I think Jack is just so young, he expects everything to be done for him, right? So he's got, okay, an imperfect toaster, but he must know by now roughly how long a piece of bread in that toaster takes before it is perfectly toasted. Just stay there with it and press the cancel button. And then the toast will pop up at the right time. He's he's putting he's putting too much onus on the toaster to pop rather than toast. If you mm. get my drift, I, I, the toaster I, is still toasting. I have never known anyone not be able to get toast right. That's quite impressive. Um, but if he does want to buy one, Jack, by the way, and I don't want to suggest that he's in, in any way, you know, a completely helpless human being because mm. of this, because I met him and he's a, he's a beautiful bloke mm. and he's very wise and intelligent and charming. But he's got a serious blind spot with this fucking toaster. Yeah. yeah. He needs to take a long time. Think of it as a grill. Think of it as a grill, Jack. You can get those toasters that are see-through, so you can actually see the bread changing colour, and maybe that's the solution for our Jack. Uh, Very, very quickly, the England's uh, women's ashes are taking place. Start on Thursday, 20th of January. And uh, it's going to be similar to the format from a few years ago. So three 2020s. One individual test match and then three one-day internationals to finish as well. And we'll be hoping that the England women can fare slightly better than their male counterparts. The Washes is just around the corner. Um, I'm sure we're all going to be watching and getting right behind the women's team as well. Uh, Norcross, I know you're salivating at this series. You're very excited about it. I am very excited about it. I, I still expect Australia to win and in points terms, very comfortably, but I expect every game, well, not every game, but most games to be really good because where women's cricket is at at the moment is that the two professional, really professional teams out there are England and Australia. 
And Australia are a little bit ahead of England. They've got more professionals and they start the process slightly earlier and they have the women's big bash. So I would say they've got the edge in quality, but England have a puncher's chance. They've got players in their side that can win them T20 games, like the Danny White, Nat Siver, Tammy Beaumont, with about Heather Knight is a brilliant captain, absolutely superb. She's got that group where she where she wants them, um, and there are you know England have have probably the best woman bowler in the world in Sophie Eccleston. There will be most days where Australia's sheer strength in depth, their prowess in the field, their consistency with the bat will mean that they will probably win out. But England have got the star performers who can make that difference. So I think that England could win it, but it will be worth a watch more, frankly, than watching England's men who only at one stage in the entire series did they go ahead on win vids for a match. <laughs> and it was and it was literally five minutes before Rory Burns was out. I, I seem to remember pointing out on... Um, I was I was working for BT Sport, the, the official mm. uh, TV rights holders for mm. the Ashes in the UK. Mm. And um, uh, I, was, I was... I suddenly noticed that they'd gone 51.9 ahead. And I checked through to our statistician, Nick Miller, who's a very splendid statistician. And... Uh, and he confirmed me that that was indeed the very first time in any match at any point in the Ashes that England <laughs> were ahead on Winvis, 51-49, and they proceeded to lose 10 wickets for 56 runs in uh, 117 it minutes was, thereafter. It was absolutely so, <laughs> pathetic the way that they saw The women the will not do that. Exactly, the they will not, will not do that. Do that. Uh, well, very much looking forward to that. And uh, we'll be reflecting on those first couple of games uh, on the podcast next week. Stephen Finn, enjoy your last 24 hours in Hobart in Australia. Have a safe journey home. And lucky you, you'll be back in England right near me and Norcross when you get back. That's, that must be nice. It must warm the cockles of your heart knowing that you're coming home to me and Dan. Well, it's the only, um, the only thing that I've really enjoyed about this pandemic is that I've only had to meet you once or twice over the course of the last 12 months. So, yeah, I, I, I hope pandemic fucks off but i hope also that i don't have to spend any time with you no. in the future in person and on that touching sentiments we'll, we'll see you next week cheers philly thank you <laughs> goodbye darling get some more sleep you look like you need it <laughs> sports social podcast network Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.